Welcome to BioChats, a podcast by Apple and Technology. My name is Ken Lung, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only AppClone's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming my friend, Dr. Nate Lumen. He is a patent attorney at the law firm of Kenobi Martins. How are you doing, Nate? Good. Good to see you, Ken. Thanks for having me here. I'm glad that you had time to hang out with me today, and you had a very interesting career path that I think both I and my listeners will be very interested in because we were at Duke University together in separate PhD programs. You did ultimately get a doctorate in your discipline, but then you decided to become a patent attorney, so we were going to talk a little bit about your career path. I believe you went to a college that I personally had never heard of, but you obviously have, Grove City College in Pennsylvania. That's right. I went to Grove City College. It is a small school. It's north of Pittsburgh, so the western side of Pennsylvania. And they got enough snow there, the lake effect from Lake Erie, that I said, when I graduate, when I get my undergrad degree, my bachelor in chemistry, I'm going to go to graduate school someplace warmer. And that's where I met you at Duke University. So what inspired you to actually go to Grove City? Was it their programs or is it uh, just something that you wanted to do because you you basically grew up in the general area? Right. I I grew up in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area, the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. And so for for undergrad, I wanted to go to a smaller school, a place where the teachers do a lot of teaching. The professors do teaching as opposed to research. And I thought that would be a better environment for undergraduate. And then when I'm ready for graduate school, move on to the, the bigger research environment, the bigger research university. So that's how I made that choice. And chemistry, like, uh, was your primary passion in chemistry? And how come you ended up in biological chemistry to begin with? Because, like, you, you know how Nobel Prizes work, right? You can actually have biochemists win the Nobel Prize in chemistry, but it almost never goes the other way around. So... I guess in a way you you got took advantage of that cross discipline. <laughs> right. And I never had my sights set on giving myself a Nobel Prize. That would be a pretty lofty goal indeed. But I did start out as an undergrad, like so many people do, in the biology program, thinking I wanted to be a medical doc. And along the way, I decided medicine wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do, but I wanted to graduate in four years. I had a lot of fun in my organic chemistry and the other chemistry classes as well. So I just thought that was a good way to go to pursue and I got the chemistry degree instead of a biology degree. I just thought I would have a more fun doing chemistry than biology if I was going to be a doctor. So that's what I did. Even after getting a straight chemistry degree, you still ended up in biological chemistry. Was there is because there was a particular mentor that you wanted to work under and they did something very, very close to the organic chemistry that you were used to, but now you can apply it to a biological system? Yeah. So the biological chemistry program was a a special program at Duke University. I don't know if it still exists, but at the time, it was a neat program that allowed a graduate student to rotate through three different laboratories to try out and see which laboratory is the best fit. And I liked the flexibility that the program offered, and we were supposed to choose at least one professor to do a rotation with in the biochemistry department and one in the chemistry department. And where that third one went, it's kind of up to me. 
And so that was a very appealing program. I had interviewed at many different graduate schools, and I liked the flexibility that program offered. And that was part of why I wanted to go to Duke University as opposed to some other places. So yeah, a very nice program. And um, if anybody has the opportunity to, to, to do something like that, I would highly recommend it. It was great. You decided to either move institutions or you moved with your a mentor to a new institution. So what was your thought process behind that? Like, did you just really feel loyal and invested in that mentor because he was invested in you? Well, yeah. So three years into my graduate work at Duke University, my thesis advisor did decide to switch to institutions. He moved his laboratory from Duke University to Boston University. And so then the question was, should I try and stay at Duke University, find a different thesis advisor, maybe have that extend my graduate program to take longer because doing a new project and our new thesis advisor could significantly delay things or go with my current thesis advisor all the way up to Boston University and continue doing what I was doing. And there were some really neat things about the Boston University setting. We came into a brand new laboratory space at the Boston University state-of-the-art labs. At the time, it was neat to go be in a big city, you know, so I I went with my thesis advisor at Boston University. My thesis advisor is Professor Mark Grinstad. He's still there at Boston University, and, you know, I'm really glad I went. He was an excellent thesis advisor. We did pack up the lab and move it up Route 95. We drove the whole lab all the way up there. Yeah, I assume there were some moving trucks that helped you drive, but you guys moved, like, some of the more precious things yourselves. Yeah, we drove. So the graduate students, we all got in this one one big U-Haul van and threw our stuff in the back there. I think there were five of us and maybe a postdoc or two that had our stuff into this giant U-Haul truck. And we drove that up I-95. But the, you're right. The moving company came in to handle the glassware, you know, all the round bottom flasks and all the column chromatography things. That was moved by professional movers. But those poor grad kids drove the U-Haul truck up I-95. If you could tell me a little bit about your thesis research, I sort of never asked which was a fail on my part, because I think I talked to you a little bit about my research and I never asked. And that makes me like a terrible friend. <laughs> oh but, uh, I, I, I figure you were in a like really hardcore chemistry with a biological twist. But most of what I remember is you bringing home some KOH because I clogged the sink again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. So my thesis work, I synthesized a series of dendritic polymers. And so the dendritic polymers that we were working on were, we were designing them for biomedical applications. And so, for example, we would take building blocks that we knew were biologically compatible. We're talking about glycerol, succinic acid, a few other molecules that had two or three functional groups on them that we could start linking together through ester bonds or some other amide bonds, depending on how it went down the road. Um, We wanted something that was more hydrolytically stable or less hydrolytically stable. And the idea was to see if those dendritic polymers could have biomedical applications. We were pursuing things like drug delivery. The dendritic polymers have a, they can, if designed right, they can have a very hydrophilic outer part of the molecule, which would make it water soluble, but the interior can be quite hydrophobic, which could hide a or encapsulate some very hydrophobic drugs inside. So for drug delivery systems, and then with the ester bonds that make up the dendritic polymer being slowly hydrolyzed, either through uh, just normal hydrolysis or enzymatic degradation 
whatever be, eventually the drug will be released. We also had some success using the dendritic polymers for eye glue, glue that would be able to, it was it formed hydrogels basically. And so the hydrogel material that was formed when we, when we polymerized some of our dendritic polymers had very similar properties to the human eye. And so we were able to show that it worked pretty good as eye glue for a bit. So those were some of the applications that got me excited about working for Mark Grinstad in his laboratory. And, um, and so that was a big part of my thesis was synthesizing some dendritic polymer. Yeah, it's great that you had like such great support. I feel like I had a good support system at the University of Chicago as well. And even at Duke, like before I just elected not to pursue it anymore. They were very understanding and very supportive of me as I got my master's there. We visited with each other whenever you came in for for conferences in Chicago, which tells me by that time that you basically got a job right out of graduate school and you decided not to do a postdoc. Is that correct? That's right. As soon as I graduated with my PhD, I started working at a law firm part-time and I was doing just a little bit of work here and there. It wasn't quite as, as formal as being a patent agent yet. I did become a patent agent later, but I started working at a law firm a couple days a week, part-time, just to see if I would like doing it. And turns out I did. So I eventually got a full-time patent agent job. And when I had that full-time patent agent job, I went to law school in the evening. So the evening program for a law school, that takes four years. So I worked as a patent agent during the day and went to law school at night. And that process took four years to do. And I guess my follow-up question is whether uh, you had to physically support yourself through law school by yourself, or if that was something that the law firm was able to put together for you? So I, of course, working as a patent agent, I got a salary for doing that. And that certainly helps pay the bills, if you will. I did have some of my tuition paid for, but not all of my tuition paid for by a law firm while I was a patent agent. And so that was quite nice. Those types of positions, they, they can be difficult to come by these days. It's not quite as common as it used to be, and it wasn't really even uh, super common when I was doing I was doing it in the 2006 to 2010 timeframe. And so some of those positions still are available today, but you won't find them heavily advertised necessarily. For you, was it basically a word of mouth that you do a lot of uh, career-based research uh, after you decided, I really don't want to be in the lab anymore, I want to do something else? The way I decided I wanted to go to law school, well, when I was working at Duke University with uh, my thesis advisor, we filed a patent application based on some of the work that we had done. And that patent application got licensed to a new startup company in Durham, North Carolina. I saw that process kind of firsthand and thought to myself, I'd like to be involved with that type of activity again and again and again. And so through that process, that got me interested in patent law. And there was a couple other things too, like one of, so my very first roommate had a book, something called like the Ivory Tower or something like that, Alternative Careers in Science. And it was just chapter, chapter, chapter of alternative careers, including things like investment banking. And one of them was becoming a patent attorney or a patent agent. So I was reading about it there and 
sort of exploring the ideas together decided it just seemed like a good way to go eventually. And so that's how I got interested in patent law. Aside from the tuition reimbursement, how did your law firm associates help you out? Like, I assume that there were partners and higher-ups, paralegals that were able to help you uh, understand the legal nuances and then eventually help you study and pass the bar, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. At our firm, we have a formal mentoring process where every single new person gets assigned both a mentor associate, which is usually a more junior attorney or agent to work with. And then they also get signed a a partner who's a more senior person. And those are go-to resources for somebody new that they can go and feel comfortable asking questions. Okay, what should I do? I just got this type of document in. How should I respond? Or or even a more menial thing, just of how's the best way to handle a internal email, you know, on this, that, or the other thing. So there, we have a formal program in place here at Kenobi Martins, and I did have some support very similar to that at the other law firms that I've worked at. So this was actually not your first law firm, but you actually got your JD while working for Kenobi Martins? I did. I started working as a patent agent at the law firm of Fish and Richardson, and that was here in San Diego, and I was going to school at night, and eventually you know that that group that i was working with there they were much more heavily involved with the biochemistry side of things and so eventually i moved to kenobi martins who had a very large core group of chemists here at the firm that uh, i found to be a a very good fit so that was my stop i I was at fish and richardson (laughs) actually after fish and richardson the partner that i was working for opened up the San Diego office of Bell, Boyd & Lloyd, which was a small firm based out of Chicago, actually. And we opened up the San Diego office, and then that firm merged with the very large firm of K&L Gate. And uh, after that merger was when I moved over to Kenobi Martin. So that was, I don't know how many firms at that point, (laughs) but I've been at Kenobi Martin since 2000 and. I did a summer associate in 2009 and then started um, as a patent agent in 2010 and back as an associate in 2010 and I can over ever since. So it's been a good spot for me. What is it that you are responsible for now for your caseload if you're at liberty to say, like, uh, you can tell me about any war stories, like any time you, you did a gotcha moment in <laughs> cross-examination? win a big case and anything like that. And how do you actually use your science background as you practice law now? In the patent law field, there's there's kind of two main areas that people work in. One, we call it patent prosecution. Sometimes you'll hear it called something more like patent procurement. And on that side of things, the attorneys are working with inventors, with companies that have inventors, writing patent applications, taking invention disclosures, working at the patent office to file patent applications and work with the examiners to get patents issued. And that is one type of activity that is very good to have a master's or PhD in chemistry or other science field because the inventors that you're talking to, that you're taking invention disclosures from, many of them do have higher degrees in sciences. It's not uncommon for them to have PhDs. And so they want to talk to somebody who can get down and understand the very minute level of detail, what it is that they've invented and what their contributions are to the field. So 
to have a science degree and a law degree can be very helpful on that side of things. The second area that people tend to work in is called litigation, which is where you, there's a patent that's already been issued and there's a company that is accused of infringing the patent. So one, one company is asserting the patent and the other company is uh, then accused of infringement. And so this comes up a lot in the pharmaceutical field. It also comes up in the material science area. Or um, I have one client as a DNA sequencing client here in, here in San Diego, which is Illumina. Some very complicated chemistry goes in their sequencing machines. And so being able to understand the chemistry uh, that's involved there has been very important to the success of our legal teams on those cases. And so I would say I do use my chemistry degree every single day. It's quite important to what I do. And, you know, I don't think I'd be in the same spot if I hadn't gone to graduate school first before I got my law degree. That's really cool that uh, you're able to immerse yourself like that. How, if you were to like quantify splitting your time, I, I assume most of it is just paperwork and making sure you have the right legal documents so there, there's no uh, technical snafu that derails a case or a client's uh, procedure, right? And then only a fra tiny fraction of it is actual trial appearances or legal meetings or anything like that? Well, you're certainly correct that only a small fraction of it is a trial or a appearance in front of a judge. Those things do happen, but they don't happen that frequently. For example, I'm getting ready for a trial that'll take place two weeks in May. I had a trial last year in June. So, you know, maybe a trial once a year. And most cases tend to settle before the trial anyway, because parties like certainty. But the day in and day out, job it's it's certainly not just uh, filing documents there's briefs to write there's depositions to take there's expert reports to draft and many 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 of those have some important aspects of chemistry that need to be uh, looked at quite closely at least the in my experience because i tend to gear up and move towards the chemistry cases because that's a good fit but if someone had a degree in immunology or a degree in biochemistry, they may be more likely to steer themselves towards more biological type work. Sounds awesome. For you personally, have you ever had like a My Cousin Vinny moment in court or are you not the lead counsel on most of these things? You're just support? You know, the My Cousin Vinny moments, those are made for movies and TV. The actual practice of patent law doesn't have a lot of those kind of gotcha sort of moments. It's not a made-for-TV kind of thing. You, I think if someone were to sit in on a hearing or a trial for a patent case, it certainly wouldn't have that theatrical aspect of it. It's going to be, a, I think most people would find it a little bit boring. <laughs> That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine most people don't get murdered in the middle of a patent trial anyway, or because of a patent case. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was my cousin Vinny, and your. <laughs> an actual real <laughs> lawyer so yeah. cer certainly i totally understand like it's not like you know the oj case or anything super theatrical like that that they sometimes show on c-span because obviously they need the ratings but you're actually doing some like everyday good for to make sure that the people who invented something are properly rewarded for it and recognized for it so that's really cool from a educational standpoint 
Would you say graduate school, your PhD in chemistry, was a harder process than the law school that you took, or were they just totally step different, separate beasts? I would say law school is actually harder uh, because I had an undergraduate degree in chemistry, and you know, the, just the the way of math and science that all was something that made sense to me. It came relatively natural to me when I got to law school there's a very different way of thinking that has to be translated to how how do things work in the legal field and how do you uh, best communicate arguments and how do you best communicate your points for your client and that was just so different from what i had done up to that point that i found law school to be more difficult and it was sort of like the first year of law school took me a while to kind of figure it out. I kind of understand, okay, what am I doing in the theater of law and how does it work? And then it kind of clicked. It kind of, as you immerse yourself in it, you kind of become good at it, of course, because you, you, you've been putting so much time and effort into it. And that's something that happened to me. If somebody is thinking about transitioning into the field of law, just know it's it's a different way of dealing with things. And what makes somebody very successful in this field is someone that can both understand the science and understand the law. And when we recruit people to try and come to our firm, we that is the skill set that we're looking at very closely. If someone can do both well, that's what we want. And that's what we need. We need people just like that. In order to prepare for law school, obviously, you probably had to take the LSAT. Was that just like totally wacky compared to the GRE? Because I heard that the LSAT is basically logic problems throughout. It, yes, you do have to take the LSAT to go to law school. At least I did in 2006, right? So I don't remember if that, that's been waived yet or not from some schools. But yes, I took the LSAT and the LSAT was a very different exam than the GRE. And I would highly recommend taking a course before you take the LSAT. Take a course that does practice exams and that helps prepare for it because uh, just going into something cold like the LSAT, you're probably not going to get a great score. So absolutely worth the time and effort to take an LSAT class before you take the test. Yeah, that's good advice. As a patent attorney now and as a PhD previously, you've had multiple different experiences in the education field, technically getting educated, but you, you were still in education for a bit. What have you learned about how you can cope with all this pressure, doing well, making sure that you, you stay up on, to task on your course material and still you know, have time to be happy and not burn out from all that pressure? Sure. Well, I think... Everybody knows when grad school, it's, it's not an easy thing to do to get through a PhD program. It takes a lot of time and effort. And, but there is a rewarding factor that goes in that you can see the, the results of your research and hopefully uh, make that contribution to science that your research was trying to do. Same thing with the laws. You know, the more you work at it, the better you are at it. So there's the reward of being good in your profession, having a building a practice and building a, a successful law practice that you can find quite rewarding. So I'm not going to say it doesn't take a lot of time. It does take a lot of time. To be a professional does take a uh, commitment. It's not a simple nine to five job, but it's it's still rewarding nonetheless. And so I think whether you pursue a career in science or a career in the law, you're going to have to spend a certain amount of time 
building that career and to make sure it's a rewarding career, you know? You know, one thing I didn't have a chance to talk about yet was if somebody did want to transition from science into the law, what that would look like. There's two typical paths. One is the patent agent path where you work during the day and go to law school at night, or just become a patent agent and never go to law school. That's kind of one way to do it. The other way would be to go to law school directly, to take the LSAT, to sign up for law school, and to go to school for three years and then get your degree. And that is a path that law firms tend to recruit law students from. It's a pretty good career path. So somebody does have some questions about how best to make the transition, feel free to reach out to me. I can help someone navigate through that if they wanted to. Technically, you're a doctor of two types. You're a doctor of philosophy and chemistry now, and you're a jurist doctor. Does that mean you you get to like throw PhD and JD on your business card, or do you have to throw an escort? Does anybody ever call you doctor in court? Or how, how does that work now? <laughs> <laughs> so... So I do have a PhD and a JD degree, but in the, the law space, I'm addressed by the court as Mr. Lumen, not as Dr. Lumen. They address basically everybody as a Mr. or Miss at court, regardless of uh, what type of degree they have. And so around the office, it's just Nate. It's not Dr. Lumen, anything like that. And so, you know, it's just, yes, we all have our credentials. And on a business card, we can write PhD, comma JD, that it's something that the clients can know that you, you have that science degree and the law degree, but it's not necessarily something that we dwell on every minute of every day. Fair enough. What does Esquire mean anyway? Esquire? I think it means practicing the law, one who practices the law. Is the only time I actually heard Esquire was honestly Bill and Ted's excellent adventure because Bill S. Preston kept calling himself Esquire like he was a lawyer and I was like, it is Esquire. <laughs> yeah. but, so I have actually I haven't looked up the definition of Esquire in a long time. So I don't recall. Stop. Oh. Thank you so much for your time today, Nate. It's great to catch up with you after all these years. Uh, we both live in California. I need to take the drive down, meet your lovely family. But yeah, I really appreciate your time and for telling us all about your very intriguing career. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a absolutely great time to chat with you and Hope we get a chance to do it again. Thanks much. This has been a conversation with Dr. Nate Lumen, and we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of AppClonal Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Ken Lund. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on AppClonal.com. Or you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or to inquire about AppClonal's quality products and services, please send a message to service at AppClonal.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.